welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're up to the eighth episode of the Clinical Reasoning series. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Natalia Costa about clinical uncertainty. Natalia is a Brazilian physiotherapist who completed a PhD in Australia using a mixed methods approach to investigate the nature of low back pain flares. And her PhD won the Lumbar Spine Research Prize awarded by the Society for the Study of the Lumbar Spine in 2021. Natalia is currently working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the universities of Queensland and Sydney, investigating how both clinicians and people with back pain navigate uncertainty during clinical encounters. And as such, we speak about her work investigating uncertainty, and we talk around a paper she and her colleagues published this year, titled Uncertainty in Low Back Pain Care, Insights from an Ethnographic Study, published in the journal Disability Rehabilitation. So on this episode, we speak about what uncertainty is, and we allude to the different ways and taxonomies used to describe it. We talk about the different sources of uncertainty, and we use the ambiguous nature of low back pain as an exemplar. And we talk about the ways that we as clinicians might neglect uncertainty, or in fact attend to it. And we talk about how we often seek to reduce uncertainty through the use of clinical reasoning frameworks, or the application of research evidence, for example, through clinical guidelines. And we talk about how an intolerance to uncertainty may prompt binary thinking and cause us to retreat to the comfort of the biomedical model and biomedical thinking. And we talk about occasions when we really do want to be certain, as certain as we can possibly be, and that there may in fact be some ethical and therapeutic merit in communicating this to our patients. And we talk about how uncertainty with low back pain is imbued with emotions on both the patient's and clinician's part. And finally, we reflect on ways that clinicians can best navigate uncertainty. So this was another brilliant conversation. Uncertainty, whether we like it or not, surrounds and often defines our clinical work. And is the omnipresent elephant in the clinical room and in the lives of our patients. Natalie's work provides some crucial insights into the slippery and uncomfortable nature of clinical uncertainty, which can allow us to reflect on how it makes us and our patients feel, and consider how we can react in the face of it. As always, I've linked Natalie's paper in the show notes, but please look out for a follow-up paper which adopts a theory-driven, post-qualitative approach to explore clinicians' experiences navigating uncertainty when working with patients with low back pain. So I bring you Dr. Natalia Costa. Natalia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Wally. Thanks for the invitation. So we're going to speak about a topic which seems to pervade every aspect of healthcare interaction, I mean, I almost said the same sentence with a previous guest, 
Claire Delaney around ethics, which also pervades every aspect of healthcare interaction, but the the phenomenon or topic of uncertainty, which is what we're going to speak about today, really does seem to to kind of pervade every aspect, particularly of MSK or low back pain care. So I'm really excited for you to give us some insights about some work that you've done in the area and continue to, to research the area. Oh, hopefully I'll be able to provide you with some insights. Let's see. So uh, we, I came to know you and your work through a paper that was published this year, 2021, or the end of 2021 to 2022, around uncertainty. And I'll link the paper in the show notes, which is titled Uncertainty in Low Back Pain Care, Insights from a from an ethnographic study, and that was published in the Journal of Disability and Rehabilitation. And it's become, you know, really one of my favorite papers currently, ever, recently, partly because of the topic that it explored, also because it's its use of ethnography, which seems to be a, an underused but growing, in terms of its usage, qualitative approach. And thirdly, for its use of theory to think through the analysis and to situate the findings. So it kind of ticked all three boxes for me. Wow. Um, that puts a lot of pressure on me as a, as a guest, but thank you very much for your kind words. Um, obviously, I didn't do this work by myself. You could see that in the paper, we have a stellar team of authors and I learned a lot from, from all of them. In a special, mm-hmm. Rebecca, who was is the second author, she's a social scientist and um, she was the one who introduced me to all the theory that I engaged with um, in the paper. So the literature from Rene Fox, from Katz, from um, Sarah Ahmed. So I'm very thankful um, for, you know, coming across all this amazing literature and of course, Jenny, um, who was my PhD supervisor and also helped me in this process to, to write this paper, which actually came from the data we gathered during Karimi's PhD project. So that's where this project was born, really. I was one of the ethnographers who was um, across the two sides observing clinicians and people with low back pain. And I noticed that, you know, uncertainty seemed to be present quite often, but yeah, at times, uh, you know, in my impression as an ethnographer, um, poorly attended to. So that um, was what mm-hmm. prompted me to want to further investigate that and really look at the data closely to explore that in greater detail. And your part, and you'll introduce yourself in a moment, but you're part of this kind of hotbed of ethnographic or qual, <laughs> post-qual research at UQ. You mentioned Karimi Mascuto, who's been on the podcast talking about kind of critical exploration of the biopsychosocial model, Jenny Setchell. I'm co-supervising with Jenny, a student, Joshua, looking at boundary work across MSK. So uh, you know, just so much kind of rich theoretically informed work going on. So now it's time for you to introduce yourself and situate yourself within that fantastic group. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you. It's a fantastic, really fantastic group that we have at UQ and the Social Health Lab. 
Um, so my name is Natalia. I'm a physiotherapist by background, originally from Brazil. And I moved to Australia about eight years ago. And I didn't start my PhD right away. I started my PhD in 2016. Had to learn English before doing that. And uh, my PhD, uh, as I think we talked about this before, was on low back pain flares. So the nature of low back pain flares. And in, in Portuguese, we actually refer to flares as crises. And that was something that really used to um, make me feel very uncertain as a clinician when I was practicing. And that was what underpinned the big overarching research question of my PhD. So in my PhD, I explored, um, you know, what the term actually means, what factors people think that triggers um, the low back pain flares. And I also we explored the risk factors, and, you know, factors that could be associated with the occurrence of flares, as well as whether these factors differed depending on how flares were defined. And interestingly, we found that yes, depending on how you define a flare, whether it's based on, you know, a simple increase of two on a visual analog scale, the risk factors tend to be different from when you take a broader approach, when it's not about a pain intensity scale, when, it, when it's about a broader definition that encompasses, you know, these um, physical aspects and also emotional aspects as well as impact on, on daily life. So, yeah, that was an interesting, um, that was an interesting journey. I was going to say, I remember when that work came out and I hadn't connected you to that work. I remember when some qual work came out about flares and trying to flesh out the, I suppose, the biopsychosocial nature of them. It, it now makes perfect sense. I mean, they're such unpredictable, kind of weird events, aren't they? That they happen seemingly within patients for no apparent reason. It's very hard to predict. They're complex. They're very uncertain. They create uncertainty in patients. Why is my pain level so high? Why am I so stressed about this? You know, all the stuff that comes with it. So it now seems entirely obvious why your work has moved into exploring this more focused aspect of a back pain flare, which is the uncertainty surrounding it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think throughout my PhD, of course, I exposed myself a lot to the literature on low back pain. And it didn't take me too long to realize that there was a lot of uncertainty in, in the literature as well. Um, but again, um, in our training and in our clinical practice, and I, I speak, you know, for myself as a clinician, while I was doing my PhD, I reflected a lot about how I didn't attend to these uncertainties, these uncertainties from the research realm, realm didn't necessarily were translated into my practice, I guess. Um, so that's that's part of what inspired the paper, as well as, uh, as I said, my experience as an ethnographer, being in the room and watching how uncertainty was unfolding in clinical practice in real, in a real life context. Yeah, and, and, and feeling how it was unfolding. I mean, to be there and to feel that, 
tension, if you like, or that anxiety or the uncertainty in the room is quite different to dishing out a questionnaire for participants to rank their degree or level of uncertainty. You're in there as an observer, participant observer, potentially. Perhaps you can say about about that, so just methodologically, what that ethnographic approach gave you in terms of generating the insights you did in the paper? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's a great question. Um, and as I said, it, my experience being in the room was what really prompted me to write the paper, even though it was Karimi's PhD. Um, when Jenny asked me, you know, what do you want to take from this project? I said, oh, I would love to write a paper about uncertainty because it, it was something that really for the lack of a better word, really bothered me. <laughs> That's a good word. It's a perfectly pro- a proper word. Like it is, it should bother us as clinicians. It should, should keep us up at night. You know, how can we manage this? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of where it came from, as I said previously. And there were, in the paper, we talk about emotions and that was certainly a huge part of it because there were times uh, where, you know, I was observing, there were interactions that I, w- I was in the room for three hours. And at times, you know, patients would cry and there would be lots of discussions about trauma, about all the, you know, uncertainties. And it was hard to not, you know, I, I would say that it was impossible to not have an emotional response to what was unfolding in the room uh, as a researcher, as a human, as a clinician myself. And um, yeah, Karim is going to laugh when she hears and <laughs> listens to that, to what I'm about to say. Um, but there were times where, you know, because it was her project, I, I called her right after to, to debrief about some of these things. And I think there there was also something very powerful about, you know, engaging with reflexivity while I was there um, too, writing these notes. And, you know, it's hard because you want to make sure that you are registering everything that is interesting. But throughout that process, I was also reflecting, seeing myself in, in, in these clinicians, in these patients, and reflecting about what was happening, um, how I was responding to it, why was I responding in a in the way that I was. So, mm. yeah, and then later on engaging with the theories, you know, looking, revisiting this data afterwards with the theory in mind uh, was something incredibly powerful as well in terms of you know, again, you engage, engage in reflexivity um, with these theories as lenses for what is unfolding. So I learned a lot from that process as well. So I think at this point, I'll direct listeners to the episode 45 on ethnography with Fiona Webster. So for those that want to learn more about this immensely productive approach to studying the social world, to go back and, and listen to that. And so now I think if we situate this notion of uncertainty in clinical reasoning, I mean, I mean, given that uncertainty is everywhere and given that it seems to be closely tied to complexity, 
seeing as complexity is everywhere and we often don't recognize it when when it's there it, 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 we might recognize it kind of after after the event on reflection what, what's an easy way to begin to introduce what uncertainty is to clinicians because i'm imagining many will have a sense of time to when they're uncertain in their practice is there a is there a kind of snazzy way to to describe uncertainty which can capture that that's a great question Oli, and it's a hard question. It's a great question, but also a hard question mm-hmm. because there are quite a lot of different taxonomies um, that aimed to try to describe, try to identify the features that characterize uncertainty. There is a few um, papers trying to define what that means, for instance, for different aspects of uncertainty, for instance, what diagnostic uncertainty means. So uh, I could speak about different definitions and taxonomies um, for a whole hour. (laughs) But rather than doing that, I think I will stick to two different approaches that, you know, I have been using in my research, with the first one being the one that we used in the paper that it, it has been already published, in which we defined uncertainty as situations, so scenarios in which etiology, um, diagnosis, and prognosis of low back pain, in this case, couldn't be definitely known. So this was the definition that we used in the paper. And in the paper that I'm currently working on, um, which this time, rather than observing clinicians and patients, we actually interviewed them. We interviewed a, a range of different clinicians, not only physiotherapists, but also GPs, pain specialists, psychologists, um, even spinal surgeon. And we interviewed a range of clinicians as well as people who experience low back pain. And in this research, we, because we took a post-qualitative approach, we didn't define the uncertainty in order to explore the topic. So it was very inductive, very broad. We simply used the term uncertainty and we asked them to tell tell us about the experiences navigating uncertainty within the context of low back pain. And they elaborated on uh, quite a few different uncertainties, which was interesting, very interesting, and hopefully this second paper will um, come out soon. And in this paper, you know, I guess in the in the paper that has been published, we talk about uncertainty, uncertainty surrounding the cause, surrounding the prognosis. But in this second paper, it's it's broader than that. It's about feeling uncertain about how to apply, you know, the the research that has often a post-positivist underpinning of, for instance. You know, people should go back to work. We should encourage people to go back to work early on. But then feeling uncertain about, you know, the context of the actual person who hasn't been working for 20 years, who will probably lose their pension when they go back to work, who need to reskill. They don't have a resume. They have been out of, um, you know, the, the field for so long and, there are all these uncertainties surrounding the recommendation, the guideline recommendation of 
go back to work. And this, I'm not, you know, creating this. This was one of the stories that we heard from one of the clinicians. So there were lots of different, um, I, I guess, we, we could say human uncertainties that came up in this um, second work. So if listeners are trying to reflect about, you know, scenarios in which they experience uncertainty themselves, I would encourage them to keep it broad and perhaps not limit the, their reflexivity only to, you know, diagnosis, prognosis and treatment uncertainty, but go broader than that. And I think, again, pointing to another episode, for those you mentioned the post-qualitative approach that your future paper or the paper in preparation took to direct listeners to the episode with Jenny Setchell around post-qual and a bit with Dave Nichols. Oh, it's a great one. Yeah, and I think I think it was 50 with Jenny and 51 with Dave Nichols where we talk about post-qual and introduce that as a, as a, a I want to say novel approach, but certainly becoming more, more widely used. So now thinking about, I suppose, some of the key findings from the paper, but also speaking more broadly about uncertainty in relation to, in relation to back pain, because that was the the topic of study, but I'm also imagining that these can be taken to all corners of MSK or healthcare. But you talk about in the paper, the sources of uncertainty, and you mentioned in terms of the working definition that you used about uncertainty around etiology. Can you share with us what some of those sources of uncertainty were in relation to your participants that were experiencing back pain and also the participants that were clinicians. So just to signpost that both patients, people experiencing back pain and clinicians were participants in the study. Yes, absolutely. So one of the examples, I think is the first one we mentioned in the results about the sources of uncertainty. It's a scenario in which the person with back pain, it's, I guess, in a way challenging the clinician because he's asking, you know, if, if I tell you that the pain is here, would you know what nerve, you know, it, it's causing my pain? And so the, the patient the, is uncertain. And I'll, I'll use the term patient just because this is the term that we use in the paper because the people with back pain who were advocating um, who are, I guess, helping us um, with the insights of the whole project. They actually thought that patience was a better term to, to represent the power imbalances, you know, between people who are providers of care and people who are seeking care because they need. Um, so just, just to um, highlight that I'm fully aware of the complexities surrounding, you know, different terms, but I will stick with patients here for now. And yeah, so the patient asked, you know, would you know what nerves come in here? And the clinician resolved that uncertainty by pointing to another biomedical, you know, it wasn't the nerve, but it, it was probably coming from the muscles. So I guess um, shifting the attention from one cause to the other and resolving that uncertainty at that point in time. And it was interesting because that was even before performing a clinical assessment. So that's when they 
actually moved on to the to the clinical assessment. And I wonder whether you know I don't want to um, as I said be prescriptive, but I wonder whether it could have been more helpful to say. I think I'll be in a better position to give you an answer to your question after, you know, we chat and after I examine you rather than not sitting with the, the uncertainty there. Yeah. As you say that, I'm, I'm recalling times when I do that, when I'm so eager to extinguish the uncertainty and to, to reassure and to give to provide some answers, some clarification. It, 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 I'm, I, you know, the charitable view is with the best intentions that you, you, you can notice that the person is uncertain and perhaps is confused or distressed by that uncertainty. And you want to come to their rescue and say, no, no, it's not the nerve, it's the muscle. And you list some muscles or it's this bit of your body. But as you brilliantly describe, just having that moment to pause and, and being with the person and also saying, I'll be in a better position to explore that after an examination or or some other form of assessment you made a very good point and i as a clinician i have been there myself multiple times too um so i'm not here to to blame clinicians for doing what they do um absolutely not i guess the whole point is just to encourage some reflexivity and in regards to what you just mentioned i have two comments um Number one, I think it's interesting to reflect about how our training and our paradigms may dictate how we respond to that uncertainty. For instance, and I think I mentioned this in the discussion of the paper, you know, physios may blame weakness of core muscles. Chiropractors may say that it's coming from a misalignment. Um, a pain specialist may say that it's... The, the facets or, you, you know, something else. and Or the brain. Yeah, or the brain. And it is important to reflect about how, what are we doing when we are navigating uncertainty in, in this way that is aligned with our understanding of reality, our understanding of knowledge, our own paradigms. What does that do to the person? Uh, how does that sit with the person? And I think that's, that's more the point that, I would like to, you know, rather than being prescriptive, and I guess that's something that we will explore in the second paper or the third paper because I'm working multiple papers at the moment. But, um, yeah, the, you know, it's important that we not only think of, you know, solutions, um, but think about what are the consequences, the both intended and unintended consequences of navigating uncertainty in certain ways, such as, blaming the muscles for the cause of back pain or blaming the brain, what does that do? And thinking about what does that do over time, because we need to consider that often, you know, these people who have back pain, they often engage with multiple healthcare professionals throughout their lifetime. We know that is fairly rare that someone will have a single episode of back pain in their lives. You know, often people experience recurrences, flare-ups. A lot of people go on and develop persistent pain. So, you know, within this broader context of healthcare, you know, throughout one's pain experience, what is that doing? And 
especially when we consider that, again, different clinicians will have different paradigms and will, will justify the pain in different ways. How does that sit with the person? And what, what does that prompt the person to do? Or um, how does that impact on their pain? And you used a, a really interesting term there, the navigation of uncertainty, which at least to me alludes to the fact that it's there whether we like it or not and that contrasts with the idea of reducing uncertainty and playing it down or eliminating Mm. uncertainty and you know thinking about the one of the themes in the paper and the findings was this contrast between reducing uncertainty versus attending to uncertainty and perhaps we can move on to into what that means and if there's good examples from the the paper from the patients participants around times when uncertainty seemed to be um it was an endeavor on the on the clinician's part to to reduce it contrasting it with i suppose fewer examples of clinicians attending Mm. or confronting uncertainty yeah happy to elaborate on that so I guess we start with the first one of scenarios in which um, clinicians attempted to, to reduce their certainty and or at times maybe even completely neglected. And I think one of the examples that comes to mind is one example in which this person had pain for a fairly long time and she had tried different treatments with different healthcare professionals and the, the it was a physiotherapist who was guiding her through a particular exercise that triggered pain. She, you know, frowned and um, lost her balance. He then asked her to perform the same exercise in a sitting position. So he was clearly trying to attend to her response um, at that particular scenario. And he not only proposed a different exercise, he also went on and proposed a different treatment, which at that point in time was prolotherapy. And I, I, as, as the person who was there in the room, I could, I could sense that he was doing that almost in his urge to, you know, it wasn't the first time that he was seeing her um, I didn't mention this in the paper, but her husband had been there. So, you know, that was impacting on her marriage. So, you know, there was a whole context there. And he seemed to have this urge of trying to, to help, right? So I'll propose this new treatment. And the person hadn't heard from this treatment up until then. Mm. And she actually asked very openly, do people get better with this treatment? And he tried to reduce the uncertainty surrounding, you know, the treatment efficacy by saying, yes, people like you do get better with this treatment. And he went on and on on why it would work for her based on on his, um, you know, explanations and and clinical reasoning, I guess. Um, So there was that then... Um, it didn't take too long until the person started crying because, you know, it was a new treatment. I haven't heard from this before. I thought I was going to, you know, get better. 
the doctor sent me here and now you sent me sending me back to a different doctor who so you know you, you could sense that that triggered an emotional response on the person um perhaps not surprisingly and yeah i think that that scenario was very illustrative of what we do when you know there is uncertainty about getting better and you know we we propose uh, at times um you know again different clinicians will propose different treatments again reflecting about what is that doing to the person so in i guess in, in our interpretation in that particular scenario i think it impacted on her own ability to to cope i suppose tied to that is uh, perhaps you can say something about that juggling between providing an optimistic narrative providing kind of hopeful aspirations of recovery yes you will get better yes i really think you'll get through this i mean to say you think someone will get through this is a somewhat certain claim they may well not get through it but if you said to patients just not sure if you're going to just it's uncertain as to whether you'll get through this that doesn't also seem entirely helpful either and so I, I, you know it may be true maybe they won't get through it for a bunch of reasons and factors but what's the juggling that clinicians need to do in terms of being honest with patients around the uncertain nature of their prognosis mm. but also not over egging it and being too negative or too realistic or perhaps overplaying the uncertainty or bringing in too early too much what's what should we do about that wow so many things came to my mind while you were <laughs> asking the question holly and i guess the the first thing that came to my mind was that when you were asking the question you used two different ways of saying the same thing so in the first example you gave it your your quote was you you may get better and i guess in the second one was you know it's uncertain i'm not sure if you get better so i guess the the first one the former has the, the they both have some level of relativism of you know being uncertain and not knowing but um I guess in the first one, it sounded a bit more optimistic without denying uncertainty. And I think that's, that may be helpful. With that said, I, again, I don't, I don't want to be prescriptive. These things are highly contextual. I think it requires a lot of this relational approach because it's not only about how the clinician perceives and deals and navigates uncertainty, it's also about the person. And, you know, the, the person will, People have different levels of tolerance to, to uncertainty. People perceive uncertainty in different ways. So I think I can't tell you exactly when is the right time to, you know, bring that in. But I would say that perhaps after developing this um, relationship and at least having an open conversation about the scenario of the person, considering the evidence that the person is bringing in because they experience it. It's also evidence. And I think within the context of clinical reasoning, it needs to be considered as well as the evidence that we often tend to rely on. 
Yes, I, I guess one would need to be very in tune with, you know, this relational aspect of the the relationship between therapists and and patient or person with back pain. You answered it perfectly that that in a well-developed therapeutic alliance or relationship where there's trust and mutual respect, there's certainly more, I want to say wiggle room, but that sounds sinister or <laughs> but you know that that there's scope to get things wrong as a clinician or if patients don't respond or they have a flare for example off the back of your your care mm. that there's that patients are more i suppose trusting that there's a a mutual kind of collaboration that this may not be blame there may not be resentment you know that, that you're, you're quite right that uncertainty in the context of a well-developed relationship seems to sit better and to be more tolerable uh, on the on the half on the behalf of the patient at least yeah i'll talk about my own which is completely anecdotal um data here but in my own experience as a clinician it's also ethnographic i think is what yeah it is. <laughs> um good one um <laughs> yeah I, I always had this impression that you know there, there were times where of, i did i did denial uncertainty mm-hmm. but there was also, there were also times in my career when I was very open about the uncertainty. And I guess the, 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 the later became more um, frequent, I guess, you know, as I matured as a clinician, because that's the other element of it. Um, I think for more junior clinicians, it might be harder to feel, you know, confident enough to disclose uncertainty because it can be conflated with lack of knowledge because you're too young in your career. So with, with that in mind, um, in my experience, most people had, uh, I guess, a reasonable and open reaction to, to uncertainty rather than I guess, getting annoyed or thinking or not ever coming back because I, I don't know anything. So I can't, to be honest, I, I can't really recall any circumstances where I did disclose uncertainty and explored uncertainty with the person and it, it turned out to be really bad. With that said, I haven't been working mm-hmm. as a clinician for a few years now. And the, the clinicians that I interviewed also talked about that. So that was a common theme that kept on repeating itself, that clinicians would say that they would disclose uncertainty and that in general people would react in an, in an open way. They wouldn't you know, react in a negative way to, to that uncertainty. Is, is your sense that, and perhaps from the, the data of the study too, that patients, one of the, I suppose, the dimensions of expertise is certainty. So you go to an expert clinician with the anticipation that you're going to get some answers here. And I'm going to be told what's wrong. They will know what to do. They'll be certain about these things. And I suppose there's there's two questions. There's, around, there's one question around the expectations of patients that they desire some certainty or expect some certainty from their clinician. And secondly, about about trying to demonstrate expertise on the behalf of the clinician, trying to appear certain or appear knowledgeable or just give the impression that they know what to do and they know what's right, that there's some kind of 
emphasis of expertise by demonstrating certainty. So perhaps mm. if you're able to comment on both the perception or expectation around certainty on the patient side and also the demonstration of certainty on the clinician side with the goal to to exhibit some level of confidence and expertise? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it comes back to, to the whole, you know, aspect of clinical reasoning, which is underpinned by uncertainty. And I, you know, a lot of the tools that we use, and I'm, I'm not a, a clinical reasoning researcher, um, I'm far from that, but my understanding of clinical reasoning is that a lot of the times the tools that we use, we use the frameworks we tend to rely on as clinicians to guide our clinical reasoning, they attempt to reduce uncertainty, right? And often with that, it comes the denial of complexity as well. And I think that can be unhelpful and I think Matthew Lowe, one of your guests previously talked about that, how I think it was Mark actually, who talked about, you know. Uh, Mark Jones. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's also not knowing what you don't know is just, it's a very important aspect of being an expert. It, it is uh, part of the artistry of being an expert, um, you know, embracing that uncertainty, knowing what you also don't know. And I can certainly relate to that a lot as a clinician, as a, as a researcher myself. And again, coming back to your question more explicitly about, you know, the patient side of things and, and the clinician, I think what I also learned from the people with back pain who I have been interviewing is that they want to see that the clinician is trying. You know, I... I don't mind if they are uncertain as long as I can see that they are trying. There is this, you know, attempt to, to help me. I can see that they are on my side. And some of them discussed that uncertainty at times can bring relief because, you know, they start to doubt themselves and question themselves. Am I going crazy? You know, is, is this pain? Am I creating this pain, really? Uh, why can't, can't anyone find out what's going on with me? And when some, I'm talking about the experiences, when someone then tells them that there is uncertainty, that, you know, there is no test that can give a definite answer to what is causing the pain, why you are in pain, that brought them relief. Um, because I, I understand that is a limitation of the science realm. It's not necessarily about me being adequate and being crazy and creating my pain. So that's one of the things that I heard from them. But yes, of course, um, we often, and I say we because I obviously seek care myself too at times, uh, we are all patients at, at some point of our lives and we tend to seek care when we want to know what's going on, when we are uncertain. So again, it comes back to reflecting about that and all, having open discussions about that with, with the person sharing the uncertainty and, and bringing the, the uncertainty to, to the clinical reasoning and sharing both the clinical reasoning and the uncertainty with the person. 
I'm going to follow up and I think on the side of the clinician and, and there does seem to be sometimes in relation to back pain or, or, or really any other aspect of MSK practice or practice generally where we can be more certain about some things than other things. And not only can we be more certain, but we really want to be certain. And so thinking about patients that experiencing low back pain that come to see a clinician, they may be uncertain as to the nature of the pain, the etiology of the pain. One thing floating around their, their mind might be some sinister pathology or malignancy. We've got a range of reasons why we want to be certain that it is or it isn't that. And I suppose in that example, we really need to know whether it's metastatic cancer causing their back pain. Or if it's not that, we want to quickly reassure them that it certainly isn't that. So, so I mean, I, I wonder if it's helpful to make some distinctions that there are times when it is important to be as certain as we can and to convey that certainty that that's possibly an ethical move to do rather than rather than um, embracing the uncertainty well, I'm not I'm not quite sure if it's metastatic cancer do you see what I mean I think there are times when we, we really want to be certain about things um, but other times they're not so what, what how can maybe help me with trying to understand why is it sometimes we want to be certain and we want to demonstrate that certainty and it's it's an ethical obligation to to be certain other times we can kind of just embrace it and say, well, it's there. We don't really know. You know. Be with me during this uncertainty. What are the qualitative differences between those two situations? Mm, that's such an interesting question. And it's a horrible question. Sorry, <laughs> I just passed on my. I passed on my uncertainty to you. <laughs> no, it's, <yeah. laughs> it's it's a great question. And again, you asked me a question, and so many things keep coming to my mind while you talk. I think the first thing that I thought of was a paper that came out, out recently about defensive medicine and how, especially within the context of imaging and, you know, tests and over, over um, investigations and uh, over medicalization, um, how, you know, that, that uncertainty surrounding, you know, something that is nasty, you know, something that can be, as you said, an example like cancer. You you want to be very certain that it's not that, right? But then what is that doing to our healthcare systems? And what is that doing to to our patients? I think it's important to to reflect about that as well. And also reflect about the tools that we use because you know, there, there, even within the context of these red flags, there, there is uncertainty there. There are false positives. There are false negatives. So we can't simply, you know, pretend that the uncertainty is not there. Uh, yes, we do have, of course, um, you know, specific clinical tests that we, we do, we perform. And that's when the clinical reasoning and uh, I guess our knowledge is, our biomedical knowledge as clinicians you know, and, and our training can be very helpful. But it's equally important to reflect about are we just doing that to protect ourselves? Is, is that a defensive mechanism? So you, are, you asked me about, you know, the two different uncertainties, you know, in terms of how do, I how do we navigate that? And I think that's, again, that ties in with 
and the whole rationale behind why we are doing what we are doing. The other thing is about inaccurate certainty because we can be very certain and we can be inaccurate in in our judgment of certainty. So I think that's another thing that is important to keep in mind when we are, you know, reflecting about uncertainty and better ways to to navigate, especially within the context, because your example was about imaging. Last but not least, I think it's also important to consider in terms of power dynamics between patients and, and clinicians, what is that doing by selling certainty or by denying uncertainty because these are two different things. Am I prompting this person to, you know, this relationship to be more paternalistic? Um, you know, am I holding all the power here of, of an, as an expert? Do I need to be the expert all the time? That's another thing that we, I think we should ask ourselves. Or what, what can happen if we embrace uncertainty that could potentially open possibilities, that could potentially unfold conversations? We saw that in the paper about other aspects, about in the case of the paper, it was about whether this person who was an older person who lived by herself, who was, you know, wasn't having much contact with, with people really. You know, the, the doctor brought up the uncertainty about the imaging findings being uncertain um, in, in relation to her presentation. And that prompted him to discuss, you know, all the things that were going on in her life. And that was coming from a pain specialist. So... I think it is important to to have all these things in mind. I don't think I can give a simple answer of black and white, you know. The, I wasn't expecting one. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess what I can offer, it's, you know, just all these points for us to reflect as clinicians, you know, why am I doing this? Um, how, how does that sit with the person? How, how is the person responding to this emotionally? And, and, you know, from a broader perspective of benevolence, health expenditure, you know, am I doing this, just, you know, this certainty around not, not having something that is very serious? We also know, and I, I guess that's the other thing, we, we can rely on what evidence suggests at this point in time because that's the other thing that we need to consider. There is uncertainty about even the research findings. Um, you know, things are in a constant flux of change. Research findings are in a con- constant flux of change. And the evidence that we have available now shows that very, very few people will have something that is, you know, serious and potentially life-threatening. So I guess we can potentially rely on that. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, on, on that, that where, where there are times that we can be more certain, then if there's good reason to be certain, if there's good reason to say this person doesn't have this particular condition or diagnosis or red flag, whatever it might be, then I can't see a reason not to communicate that to patients in a sensible professional way as long as it's really contained to that particular idea that you're not that if it, 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 that particular question the question is do i have cancer 
then I think there's nothing wrong, ethically wrong, morally wrong, to communicate, well, the reasons why it's unlikely or you don't think, or you're as certain as or as certain as you can be, really, as a subjective being, that this isn't cancer, for example. And and so I think just getting the nuance right between embracing uncertainty but also not pretending it's not there too, but at the same time recognising when we can be somewhat certain about things, then perhaps there's an obligation to, to communicate that too. Yeah, that that's an interesting point. And, and I, I agree with you in the sense that there are times, the circumstances where it may not be, it may not be so negative to, I guess, sell that certainty. Um, I think number one, what I think we need to consider in this context is, you know, again, what are the intended and unintended consequences of that selling of certainty. And I say that because uh, I keep hearing the the people who who experience back then keep hearing their voices in my head saying that at times when, you know, they they come across a lot of certainty in terms of there is nothing wrong with you, you know, or there is nothing really serious going on, but but my experience with pain is very serious. So if you are selling that certainty, but then that is leading the person to feel dismissed, then maybe that's not um, ideal, I would say. Um, so again, I guess it comes back to, to reflexivity. And I, I think you'll be interviewing Bob, um, Barbara Gibson yeah. um, sometime soon, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to your um, podcast with her. Because a, a lot of um, that reflexivity that I'm talking about is inspired in her book, um, Rehabilitation, a, a Post-Critical Approach. And yeah, so I'm sure she, Barbara will be able to elaborate a lot more on that. It was really helpful to have your reflection. And and I suppose thinking about, you know, that I'm not looking or, or we shouldn't be looking for clear strategies to, to manage or navigate uncertainty for clinicians. But what would be some, I suppose, reflective pointers for clinicians to, to think about uncertainty in their practice? And we've touched on some of them already, but I wonder if you want to advance those a bit more and how should clinicians be thinking about uncertainty? And how, I suppose, also how should they feel about uncertainty? Uh, I mean, is it is it, it's often a kind of sinking feeling or uh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what's wrong, I can't help this person, they want answers, I don't have the answers. Well, how do we manage that kind of that inner turmoil amongst our, within ourselves? Wow, big questions. <laughs> oh, good. I'm sorry. Big, big questions. They're there. just coming from the inner turmoil. <laughs> this is my own, uh, my own feelings of uncertainty. So again, yeah. I'm looking for you to... To help me. Okay. Um, few things there. <laughs> I think number number one, um, I will start with your late, latest point about how, um, you know, one should feel about uncertainty. I think it's important to feel curious about uncertainty. You know, it can be uncomfortable, very uncomfortable at times, and I think there is nothing wrong with, you know, feeling uncomfortable 
uh, feeling challenged by uncertainty. Um, but I, I guess rather than thinking about when, how clinicians should feel, I think it's important to consider, you know, when, when is not helpful, right, to, to embrace uncertainty because there is also, f- there are findings in the literature that talk about the, the, find, the, the observation that clinicians feel so overwhelmed about uncertainty at times that, you know, that leads to um, them experiencing burnouts or, you know, decreasing their job satisfaction and maybe, you know, leading them to, to experience um, depression symptoms and, you know, due to the nature of their work and, and dealing with that uncertainty at, at a high level. So I guess that's not helpful. That can be um, dangerous and I think it needs to be, you know, considered and addressed. Because when I guess when it causes that burden, that level of burden, it can be very unhelpful. And in terms of the first part of your question, in terms of what we could suggest in addition to reflexivity, I guess I will elaborate on a few of the points that I, we mentioned in the paper. We've, you know, we we are very clear in the paper about the fact that we don't feel like we can say, state what is the best approach to navigate uncertainty, but learning from what we observed, I guess, disclosing uncertainty and discussing with the person, with the patient, what the literature, the current literature suggests might be helpful. You know, although there is a lot of uncertainty, we know that in in all the research that underpins our clinical work, it, it is important to, to bring that research into the context and not only disclose uncertainty for the sake of um, disclosing uncertainty, but being responsible about, you know, what you're doing and contextualizing with research findings, with the evidence that the person brings in as well and how it sits with them, how it makes them feel. And then, yeah, taking time to explore how how they feel in, in response to, to that uncertainty that is being disclosed. And for instance, in the paper, there is a scenario in which the clinician did disclose uncertainty, but he did at the very end, I guess he ended the appointment right after that. You know, everything in pain management is try and error. We'll, we'll try and let's see if it works. And then I'll see you in three months. See you next week. Yes. Um, and he then asked the person, you know, do you still want to undergo this treatment? Are there any questions that, you know, um, any points that, any concerns that you want to raise? So again, we can learn a, learn a lot from this example. We can't simply disclose uncertainty. It's important to attend to it. And the other examples that we learned from the paper of attending to uncertainty, although they were, they were not very frequent in the data, I must say, you know, it was um, about, yes, disclosing risks because that ties in with ethics as well, right? And um, I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast you mentioned on um, the topic. You know, trying to explore scenarios of what can be done so, you know, I, I think doubt, uncertainty doesn't 
preclude action and I'm quoting Anne-Marie Moore here, you know, we can still move on despite of uncertainty. And I guess we, we all learned that after COVID, you know, communicating risks, um, trying to, to perhaps focus on what can be done, you know, reducing power imbalances, perhaps um, might be an option as well. And disclosing uncertainty, I guess that's also a way of attending to it. And I think, you know, and I'm going to be, oh, I'm not going to be prescriptive, but something that's helped me is, it, it was that feeling of inadequacy as a clinician that there's uncertainty, there's some answers which perhaps or rather there are some questions which you don't know the answer to. Someone knows those answers somewhere. You're just not smart enough, skilled enough, expert enough to know those answers, right? So you're uncertain. And the truth is no one knows, right? Everyone's uncertain. And so speaking to colleagues about that uncertainty and only are you enlightened to the fact that they're equally as confused as you are, but there's a way of explicating that uncertainty and discussing how it makes you feel, why are you uncertain, why why does it bother you so much that it's uncertain? And there's a whole kind of reflective peer discussion mm. to be had there, which can help one as a clinician Absolutely. to become more comfortable themselves with uncertainty. And I'm guessing that once it's more comfortable, once you find it more comfortable as a clinician, it's going to be easier to convey that uncertainty or to interact with it in the clinic room with the patient. What you said is so interesting because this is also something that is coming up in the interviews with clinicians that when uncertainty is shared, the burden mm. of uncertainty is mm. easier to bear. It builds up. It builds up, doesn't it, otherwise? Yeah, so a lot of the clinicians who we interviewed who were working multidisciplinary teams, they, they talked about this, that the fact that they had the support, they could debrief afterwards with their colleagues and share that uncertainty, as you said, and realize, oh, I'm not the only one here who doesn't know <laughs> what's going on, um, seemed to, to be helpful. And I think thinking broader, you know, the, I, I guess there are other elements that we need to consider there. We've, I'm doing policy work as well, and one of the things that I think is important to, to consider is are we developing policies that, you know, help us to, to navigate, to deal with uncertainty in helpful ways? Um, you know, policies that are person-centered, policies that encourage individualization of care. I think that's important to consider at, at, a, at a broader level. It's our healthcare system designed <laughs> to help us to navigate uncertainty. Um, so I think that's important to consider and also getting a bit more philosophical, you know, what is, what are the paradigms that are informing these policies as well? Uh, and what is that doing to uncertainty and the way that we navigate uncertainty in our clinical practice? And then that ties in with, again, another philosophical discussion of what do we think the knowledge is. Do we think that, you know, it's, there is a single truth out there that we can identify if we use the right methods or do we believe that um, reality knowledge is multilayered, it, it's pluralistic? So I think that's one of the things that 
we need to consider as well. And in terms of education, because I think we can't talk about uncertainty and not reflect about our training and, you know, how our training addresses um, or neglects uncertainty. And I can, I can speak for myself, you know, reflecting about my own training and I was never assessed on my ability to communicate uncertainty. <laughs> there wasn't a thing. I don't know if this is a thing anywhere in the world, but it certainly wasn't in Brazil when I was trained 10 years ago. And I was very, being a physio, I was very much trained to, you know, find the right answer. There was one right answer to the exam. You know, I, I supposed to perform that is specific clinical te test at that particular mm. point in time and, you know, make the right decision. Um, so, yeah, reflecting back, I don't think there was much scope for relativism or, or uncertainty in my training. And I think that can be problematic and we need to explore perhaps different ways of, of approaching uncertainty in training. And some... I can't remember the name of the, the first name of the author, but there is some articles in which, you know, the authors are discussing this. I think Santosh is one of them that perhaps there is a potential there for, for training the future workforce to um, navigate uncertainty in better ways. And maybe that will impact on, you know, the care that we provide more broadly uh, in terms of high value care and person-centered mm. practices. And I think to just, you know, finally that the expectations that students leave their training universities just fully equipped to handle any uncertain event, probably unrealistic. On the contrast, the current way that things work is that you just become good at communicating and managing or navigating uncertainty merely through the course of time that you just have to survive as a clinician and the more patience you get under your belt patient mileage i think it's described as an awful term but the more clinical experience you just become better there's it's a very passive process where you know this is a whole another podcast i guess but actually it takes deliberate reflection and even to attend to uncertainty you have to become aware of that uncertainty the first you have to recognize that there is something uncertain here in the first place and if your clinical lens is one of black and white structure certainty then you'll just kind of sleepwalk through your uncertain practice indefinitely absolutely i think the, the the whole idea of uncertainty can bring up this pluralism you know multi-layers that we know that can be very helpful in clinical reasoning and in fact there is also research showing that those clinicians who are intolerant to uncertainty, they tend to endorse a very much biomedical approach to, to back pain and, and pain more broadly. So that has been shown in the literature. So again, yeah, that ties in with what you just said. Um, perhaps if we teach students, the future workforce to be more reflective and, and consider uncertainty in, in different ways, maybe that there is a possibility there that they will broaden their paradigms and, and how they perceive pain and care more broadly. 
Yeah, and embedded in this entire clinical reasoning series from first episode with Roger Kerry to where we are now. I forget which number we're at, but, you know, we've talked about ethics, diagnostic reasoning, the kind of messiness of evidence, reflexivity, and we t- it, it, it's threaded through all the episodes too. So, so it's just there, whether we like it or not, as exemplified by the podcast, let alone your work in clinical practice. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we can, we can deny that. Um, um, certainly not. Natalia, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Ali. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.